for scripture this morning. I'm going to read from John 16, verses 7 through 11. Again, John 16, 7 through 11. This is Jesus talking. If I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. In regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. The, the last song that we just sang, Good, Good Father, there's a phrase in there that uh, struck me. Searching for answers. We're searching for answers. We live in a world that is searching for answers. And, and there's some times that we are searching for answers. Who is God? How do we embrace him? C.J. Stroud is a star quarterback for Houston Texans, uh, NFL football team, has had an incredible rookie season and very likely will win the offensive uh, rookie of the year award. Stroud came to faith in Jesus Christ during his college years at uh, Ohio State. And two weeks ago, in a post-game interview on the field after his team, the Texans, had defeated the Cleveland Browns in a playoff game, he began his response to the interviews, interviewer's question with these words. He said, first of all, I want to give all the glory and praise to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's not the first time that Stroud has given praise and honor to, to Jesus Christ. He has clearly identified himself a number of different times in interviews. He has an active faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And then in the interview, following that statement, he proceeded to answer the question, you know, as a normal football player would, um, how the game went, how the city of Houston was such a great place to, to live and to play, you know, all the normal things that you would hear from a, somebody with a well-played game. And then NBC, uh, NBC was a network that was covering the game. They were the ones that posted then onto X or Twitter as it's now called, X is what it's now known, there was something that they omitted as they posted this interview. Stroud's first words, giving glory and praise to God, never made it onto X. They never made it. They were gone. And this isn't the first time, and it's probably not going to be the last where comments about God will be ignored or removed from public display in some form or fashion. And I had to think, why does it shock us when our faith is ignored, when it's pushed to the side, maybe even mocked? Um, Jesus' disciples face the same thing. It's not a new challenge. It was no easy task for Peter, James, John, and, and the rest of the disciples to present Jesus Christ and the gospel back in A.D. 33, 35, 40. No easy task in 2024 either. As humans and as society, not, not just Americans, but all over the world, 
We like to do our own thing. We like to have things our way. We don't like something or someone to tell us that we need to change our ways to refine or cleanse our thought patterns. In the Bible, God's word, Jesus' teachings, they can be convicting. They can be uncomfortable for us to hear. And we'll be challenged by its wisdom. We'll be challenged by the call and direction that we read and hear. But we also know the power, the joy, the peace, and the freedom that is available and there in God's word, available for us. And, and this world tends to attempt to push God aside, push Jesus out, and convince us that, as to biblical teaching about God, no, he's not. Doubt. But what we've just read in John is that the Spirit has been sent to prove otherwise. And that's where the sermon title came in. Yes, he is. Here's who God is. In verse 8, we read, When he, the Spirit, comes, he will convict the world in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Um, some other phrasings, he will prove the world to be wrong. So, so what is the Spirit going to do? Well, prove to the world. Convict the world about God and who God is. In, in verse 8, the Greek word that's used here is elenko. And elenko is defined as to find a person guilty, to awaken a consciousness of guilt, to reprove someone of wrongdoing, to expose what is wrong, to convince. And so within these verses, what is the world in the wrong about? And, and therefore, there's another question that goes with that. If, if the world is wrong, well, what's the truth? Where is the error? And what is the truth about God that the world needs to be convinced of? And I would say also we, as believers, what do we need to be reminded, encouraged by and of? In John 14, 6 through 7, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And that phrase, if you know me, you know the Father. But we don't have Jesus right here physically in our midst anymore. He's not here. So how do we know the Father? Well, the same way the rest of the world does. By reading God's word and letting the Spirit guide and direct us and teach us. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The spirit and the word. Together they work. Not individually. Together they work for us to learn and know who God is. And in these verses that we read in John 16, it, there's stated three areas where the Spirit will carry out this proving and convicting. The area of sin, the area of righteousness, and the area of judgment. And so what I want to do today is look at those three areas. What, a, what bit of what, what is the convicting, what is the proving going to be in those areas? So the first one, 
in the area of sin. Charles Spurgeon, a renowned Baptist minister in the late 1800s, there's a sermon in February of 1883, 140 years ago. He made this observation related to the same set of verses. Said the fashionable theology is convince men of the goodness of God, show them the universal fatherhood, and assure them of unlimited mercy. Win them by God's love, but never mention his wrath against sin or the need of an atonement or the possibility of there being a place of punishment. Do not censure poor creatures for their failings, do not judge and condemn. Do not search the heart or lead men to be low-spirited and sorrowful. Comfort and encourage, but never accuse and threaten. And Spurgeon closes his comments with this. He said, yes, that, what I just described, that is the way of man. But the way of the Spirit of God is very different. No one likes to be told we're wrong, that we're sinning. Mankind doesn't want to be told to stop doing something that is fun, pleasurable, enjoyable, makes us feel good. We want to be reassured that we are loved. And and we are. We are loved. We want to be told that we can come to Jesus as we are. And we can. But we sin. And that's not where we are supposed to be staying. That's not the Father's desire for us, to stay in that setting of sin. The fashionable theology of Spurgeon's world that he described in 1883 sounds very similar to the love me but don't judge me and expect me to change theology that we exist in right now, 2024. But sin is not okay. Sin separates us from God. Sin moves us from a path that God has designed and laid for us to follow. And whatever you might wish to list as a sin, pride, envy, lust, anger, greed, immorality, I mean, any, any of the sins that you can identify, it's a matter of taking self and taking self and putting it at the center of our focus and desires. Not God's will at the center, but mine. But sin is real. Sin is present in our world, and it's in our lives. And it's not to be ignored. It's not to be glossed over. Later in that same sermon, Spurgeon commented on this. He said, the Holy Ghost does not come to make sinners comfortable in their sins, but to cause them to grieve over their sins. So when when I fall short, I, I should feel some sadness, regret for that. And I should be praying for strength from God to not fall into those traps again. Conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit is not a bad thing. One of the resources I ran across said this. This is a pretty pretty neat statement. Conviction is a prelude to salvation. Not a statement that I made up on my own. I, I mean, I read that. Conviction is a prelude to salvation. If I feel that I haven't sinned, then I don't need to be forgiven. And there is no need for reconciliation, no need for forgiveness by God. So therefore, I don't even need God then. 
If I don't sin, I don't need saving, and I don't need God. I don't need to have a faith in God. I don't need to have a faith. And that's a bit of what these verses are saying. If we don't acknowledge sin, then we're not expressing a belief in God and his sovereignty. Ministryjourneyonline.org summarized these verses about sin, saying this, millions of people are locked in spiritual darkness. Many have never heard the truth. Others are blinded by Satan and do not accept the truth. Our responsibility is to tell them the truth. As we do, the Spirit will persuade them. And I believe we need to be reading our Bible, sharing with one another in fellowship, listening for the Spirit to be convicting us as well, day by day. We're not immune from sin. Faith in God draws us nearer to him and his truth about sin. Our good deeds do nothing to outweigh our sin. We don't do it ourselves. Our salvation depends upon being convicted, repenting, and then being forgiven of our sins by God. And without conviction by the Spirit, there is no redemption that we need to undergo. Second, righteousness. The normal sequence in a system of justice where a conviction of wrongdoing occurs is then you have a judgment. It immediately follows. If you're convicted of a crime, then you have a judgment. But here's where God has a different plan for us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's not judgment. There's something in between. So four questions for us. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? I do, yes. Do you believe that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead? Do you believe that Jesus ascended into heaven to live forever with God? Yeah. We've been convinced of that. And then proving to be done in this case is for the world to believe in that same sovereignty and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Verse by verse, commentary.com says this about the righteousness of God. It said, the standard for acceptance into heaven is God's very own righteousness, which is absolute or perfect righteousness. If God were to receive anyone into his presence with even a fleeting sin, he would compromise his own character. He would be inconsistent with himself. So in verse 10, we read Jesus telling the disciples of both his resurrection and his ascension. He said, I am going to the Father. Here's where I'm going. So following his 40 days on earth, following the resurrection, Luke 24, 50 to 51 provides this description. He said, when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. To be welcomed back into heaven, Jesus had to be sinless and righteous. To be with God. For us to be welcomed into heaven, we need to accept that we are not righteous apart from the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. He was the one that was righteous. Righteous. 
covering our sins. Spurgeon, again in that same sermon, summarized it this way. He said, be amazed at this. And it draws our attention. Be amazed at this. The Lord takes a man, even when he is sinful and conscious of that sin, and makes him righteous on the spot. By putting away his sin and justifying him by the righteousness of faith, a righteousness which comes to him by the worthiness of another who has wrought out a righteousness for him. Jesus Christ has wrought out that righteousness for us. And we're saved because we believe in Jesus Christ and the plan of salvation. Jesus Christ lived and died. He rose again. For me, for you, for anyone who believes. He was the one that was perfect. He was the one that was righteous. He sacrificed himself so that we can be perfect in God's eyes. And we can't do that ourselves. The righteousness of God is something we cannot attain by any good works, only by believing in the Son of God and his righteousness. And the Spirit is going to be the one to convince and prove this world of that holiness and righteousness of God. The Spirit has to move and reveal that to this world. Third, judgment. And, and, and this judgment scenario, I, this is something I don't think the world understands what the severity of this is. Um, associate, association with the devil, dabbling with things of Satan uh, occur frequently, sometimes obviously, sometimes innocently. Um, recently there was a Music award show <laughs> where singers dressed in red with horns of a devil on their hat singing their song titled Unholy, fully embracing Satan. That was shown for the public to see. There's different times where we can see, we can hear songs, we can read articles where there's embracing of evil. Last week, I ran across an article about a club. It's called the After School Satan Club, which was founded in 2016 by the Satanic Temple that is housed in Salem, Massachusetts. They sponsor meetings for children and youth, and their description is very innocent. The After School Satan Clubs incorporate games, projects, and thinking exercises that help children understand how we know what we know about our world and our universe. We do not teach children to believe in supernatural beings named Satan or perform satanic rituals. But they do target schools and corporations that have active Christian clubs. But how innocent is that? Who wouldn't be in favor of your children in experiencing games, projects, and thinking exercises? Who wouldn't be in favor of learning about our world and our, our universe? It's educational, but it's connected to Satan. But it can sneak its way in, but it can be fought, it can be combated. 
regardless of the connection and activity, any association with Satan is evil. And there's two words that I've used before uh, comparison, conviction and condemnation. The word conviction is used for how the spirit relates with us. But the word condemnation is the word that's used as it relates to Satan. Those who are convicted have the opportunity to repent, change their ways. Not so with those who are condemned. Condemnation is permanent. And the judgment on Satan is already in. He has been condemned. Colossians 2.15 says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. That is Jesus. Jesus made a pub- public spectacle of those powers and authorities, triumphing over them by the cross. The cross has defeated Satan. He's already lost the battle. Jesus defeated him at the cross and at the grave. But, but Satan, is, Satan is still active. He still has power on this earth. There have been and there will continue to be people who will not follow God, people who will follow, even decide to worship Satan. That will happen. 2 Corinthians 4.4 said, The God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And that's why we need to keep sharing the gospel. The truth of the gospel is about repentance and salvation. But Satan has been at this a long, long time. He knows how to entice. He knows all the half-truths that he can use He started it way back in the garden. But why would anybody want to go down with a sinking ship? Because that's what Satan has. Well, because they don't know, or they don't care, or they're blinded. 1 John 3.8 says, The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Jesus came to earth to destroy the devil's work. We need to approach our conversations about faith just like Paul, who wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, 4 to 5, he said, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. Good grief, Paul wrote books. But he started it. He said, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So as gifted a speaker as there was, Paul knew it was the Holy Spirit who would do the proving, the convincing, and the convicting. Scripture and the Holy Spirit reveal the power of Christ. And I have a t-shirt. I, I, I didn't think about it early enough. I thought about bringing it um, just as I was in the office. I have a t-shirt that I got that said, God wins. I've read the final chapter. And the world needs to know that too. God 
has already won. C.J. Stroud is paid very well to play football. That's his earthly job. But, but he has made a number of comments recognizing and knowing that that's not his actual job and reason for being here on earth. He has an incredible platform. Being the star quarterback of a professional football team, he will be interviewed more frequently than any other player on his entire team. Probably not more than the coach, but he will be interviewed more than any other player on that team. Huge platform, and he knows it. Stroud has stated that his job on earth is to spread the word of God, spread the gospel, telling of his faith in the one and only God who saves, the one and only Lord and Savior, and telling him the truth that he knows of Scripture from the Bible. But isn't that the job for all of us as well? Share the story of God's Son coming to earth, living a free, a life free of sin, dying for our sins, raising from the dead, defeating death, ascending into heaven, inviting us to live with him forever. Wednesday night, we're, we're doing a class on a book by Rosaria Butterfield titled Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. And there was a pastor, Ken Smith, that interacted with her. Many conversations. She came uh, out of a life of lesbianism. Um, she was a women's study, uh, women's, yeah, women's study professor at Syracuse. But many conversations with Ken Smith and others within the, their church. But here's what she said. In time, the Holy Spirit opened my eyes to see that the Bible is an inerrant, infallible, inspired, sufficient, authoritative, and living book inextricably coupled with our Lord and Savior, his kingship and loving sacrifice for all who believe. But what I have just written is rejected as foolish by many, many people, smart people, who call themselves Christian. We must know what is true and we must also know how to confront what is false. The Holy Spirit worked in her heart. Jesus has called us to spread his love and teachings to this world in word and in deed. They go hand in hand. The job of convince, uh, convicting others of biblical truth is left to the Holy Spirit, but we have to be active. Biblical truth about God needs to be shared and modeled. We need to do our part. Along with C.J. Stroud, Rosaria Butterfield, and Christians everywhere, we need to keep speaking and sharing and living out that truth. And I also want us to be encouraged. Encouraged by God's power and strength and promises that are true for all those who call upon his name. Spurgeon added these three comments near the end of his sermon. And again, back in 1883, God's truth doesn't change. He said these three things. He said, dear friends, those of us who are saved still need the Holy Spirit with us every day to convince us of sin. He also said, may those of you who are indeed believers never question but what you are righteous before God. Not because of what we've done, but because God, Jesus Christ, has saved us. 
And he also said this, said the day of judgment is not a thing to be dreaded by the believer. We have stood our trial and we've been acquitted. Our representative, Jesus Christ, has borne the penalty of our sin. So I want to finish by just basically saying, I'm not going to sing this as well either, Bob. There's a song, simple song, and you'll recognize it, written in 1940 by Seth and Bessie Sykes. Incredibly simple. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation, so rich and free. I invite the team forward.